couple of sermons ago, I made a reference to Johnny Erickson Tata, who is a 17-year-old, dove into the Chesapeake Bay at a place where the water was more shallow than they knew. She struck the bottom with her head, and the impact left her immediately paralyzed. In fact, she would have drowned had her sister not pulled her from the lake that afternoon. Johnny was uh, strong and athletic and optimistic, and to this day her personality, some 40-plus years later, is still optimistic and bubbly. She, from reading passages in her Bible, became convinced that God would heal her, that God had promised healing. Based on a text I'll read you in just a moment, no need to turn right now, but Based on this text, she was convinced that God would heal her fractured spine and restore her to her feet. So she brought together a group of friends and church leaders, set up a private healing service in her home with her family. The week before that service, she had publicly confessed her faith to people, saying, and I quote, her, watch for me standing on your doorstep soon, I'm going to be healed. End quote. On the scheduled day, the group met with her in her home, read the word, anointed her with oil, and prayed in fervent faith. And nothing happened. And eventually, everyone sort of slipped away and went home. Johnny would enter a dark valley of disillusionment and doubt a valley traveled by thousands of Christians before her and thousands since. Had she missed some clue? Had she prayed the right formula? Was she deprived of her miracle because she lacked sufficient faith? Was there some unconfessed sin she hadn't thought of? Was it enough oil? Was it applied in the right way? And on and on and on. It would take some time before she surfaced spiritually with a better understanding of God's sovereignty and God's word. Can God miraculously heal people today? Absolutely yes, he can. Could he have healed Johnny Erickson Tata then and there? Without a doubt, God can do whatever God wants to do. But is there some formula that we can follow that guarantees he will heal every time? Is there some verse of Scripture that promises that if someone spiritually superior to you prays that you will be healed? Is there a text that guarantees that with enough faith you will receive from God your miracle or whatever it is you ask of him? I want to read you a verse or two right from the Bible used by religious leaders, denominations, movements, Protestant pastors and Catholic priests, televangelists, healers, to prove all the above and more. I'm going to read a text used by Catholic and Protestant leaders to create a hierarchy of spiritual power that resides in the hands of the pastor or priest. I want to read a text of Scripture that supports the mystical application of oil in anointing the sick. 
a text to support the charismatic view of prosperity theology and their doctrine of the prayer of faith. I'm about to read a verse or two for you that is used to support the incantational use of the name Jesus. So I want to give you some verses right out of the Bible that guarantee physical healing whenever you are sick. Are you ready? I'm going to read to you from James chapter 5, beginning with verse 13. How many of you knew that's where I was going? That's just not fair, okay? You're way ahead of me. Let me read it, and then we'll expound on it. James 5, beginning at verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? Well, he is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Now we'll stop there. Immediately, if you're like me, you're struck with a number of questions, aren't you? I just jotted a few down in my own study as I began to look at this paragraph in preparation for today. Questions like, what do the elders of the church have to do with sickness and healing? Is there a third ministry of those who serve as elders, pastors? Are they supposed to be involved in the ministry of the word and prayer and healing? Why is oil a part of this process? Does this kind of prayer, including enough faith, always restore the one who is sick? Well, what does confessing sin have to do with this process? And what kind of sicknesses are actually being healed? Well, those were some of mine. Let's start at the beginning and and untangle this from what we may have heard it meant, or maybe what we'd like it to mean. What's missed in all of this is the primary issue of prayer. In fact, you ought to underline the word pray or prayer. It appears in every verse I just read. That's the issue. Pray. And we'll talk about this as we work through this text. Well, what's also missed is the context of this paragraph. James is not writing to tell Christians how to get out of trials or trouble. He's writing uh, Christians, telling them how to get through them, how to live with them, how to endure. And the heart of endurance is prayer. You might think of endurance as an automobile and prayer as the engine that moves it forward. But the context is one of endurance. So he begins up at verse 7 by saying, be patient like a farmer. You remember that? Do everything you can do. Plant, water, hoe, weed, and then wait for God because God can alone send rain. Be patient, he says in verse 8. Strengthen your heart. The Lord is, is near and is coming. Verse 11, we count those blessed who endure. Remember, remember Job. And his endurance, that's the, that's the context. And he gives us several imperatives along the way, exclamation points, as James is prone to do. He adds to the list of imperatives. This time he commands the believer to pray about everything. 
So let's start again at verse 13 and work our way through this misused and misunderstood text, certainly confusing to our 21st century ears. And, and, and as we work our way through this paragraph, by the way, we're not going to get all the way through it. I'll let you know that ahead of time. We're not going to quite get to the end of it, okay? I'm going to give you five points, probably not all five today. Five commands from James to help us focus our thoughts and uh, It'll help guide our study. The first command is this. Pray when you are overwhelmed with emotion. Verse 13 again. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. That's an exclamation point. That's a command. Pray. You might write a little exclamation point next to your text. And now the truth is we as Christians love to talk about prayer, don't we? We love to hear people talk about answered prayer. I know I do. We thrill to the stories of great Christians from the past who had unbelievable prayer lives and saw God do wonderful things in and through their lives. We we love everything about prayer except the discipline of prayer. One author I was reading that was commenting on this text did a little survey and found in his own study that the average Christian prays anywhere from three to five minutes a day. Three to five minutes a day. Compare that to three to five hours of television or radio or texting a day. He said, compare the time you spend complaining to the time you spend praying. Compare the time you spend talking to people about other people to the time you spend talking to God about people. And you'll have an idea how prepared you are to endure the troubles of life. Pretty convicting statement, isn't it? James is effectively writing here, are you having any trouble? And just about everybody could go, that's me. Well, then who are you talking to about it? Have you talked to God? Are you suffering? The word suffering here in verse 13 refers to experiencing misfortune. It refers to suffering some kind of calamity, uh, some kind of hardship. It can be physical, mental, emotional. It can run the gamut. Whenever you are suffering, James commands, pray about it. And by the way, James is not giving trite advice. He isn't coming along and slapping somebody on the back and saying, yeah, 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 I hear about that trouble you're having. Yeah, pray about it. Hey, we'll pray about it. Well, that is our list. That can be very trite. It may not be. It may be meaningful. He's not doing that here. He's writing to Jewish believers that are suffering. They've had their lives turned upside down. They're exiled from a Roman Empire by an anti-Semitic emperor. They've lost everything. Now they're here in the church. They're involved in the assembly. They're listening as the letter from the Apostle James is is being read to them. No doubt they got a prayer list going around in their fellowship. Uh, No question uh, in in their minds they're committed to Christ. To them, he says, pray. Are you praying about your situation? During times like these, when you are overwhelmed with emotion, the emotion of misfortune, James writes, don't just talk about prayer. Don't just go to a meeting of prayer. Don't just hang around people who pray. You pray. When in pain, pray. Now, just as quickly as he delivers to us that command, he flips over the coin, emotionally speaking, and he writes further. Look there in verse 13. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. 
James is describing the exact opposite emotion. Is anyone filled with courage? You could render it. Is any one of you in good spirits? You could, you could render it. In fact, the only other time this word appears in the New Testament is when the Apostle Paul is trying to, to, to encourage those sailors as their boat is about to go down. He's trying to cheer them up. He, he's trying to instill in them good spirits. Are you... In, in, a, in a good spirit. Now you might think, well, it is, it is because things are working out or I got out of the right side of the bed or, or the coffee helped especially this morning or whatever. No, it's attributed back to your sovereign Lord. Whether you are suffering or whether you're singing, just connect it both back to Christ. James is effectively saying, when that emotion is experienced, don't forget to sing praises to God. Actually, again, a command. You could write an exclamation point in your text. Thomas Manton, the Puritan in the 17th century, wrote in his commentary on James that I enjoy periodically reading from. He said this, you know, we wanted mercy from God in the morning, but we usually forget to sing praises to God in the evening for giving us the mercy. What James is doing here is is providing a contrast that allows for every possible emotion, from deep sorrow to great elation. In other words, you talk to God about every emotion you feel and even all those in between. In fact, one Greek scholar believes the commands to pray and to sing can be transposed back and forth between these imperatives. So that it could be reading uh, this way, if you're happy, pray, and if you're suffering, sing. They both work, which, by the way, is exactly what Paul and Silas did. Remember, they're in stocks, in prison, and what do they do? They sang. They sang. Jesus Christ is about to enter the veil of great suffering. He's about to pray and and pray with such passion, he'll sweat blood. The capillaries underneath his skin will burst. And he does, prior to, to arriving at the garden, there in the upper room, he leads his disciples in singing. Can you imagine that? They sang a hymn together before leaving, Matthew 26, 30. To this day, the body of Christ is marked by composing and singing praise to God. Isn't it? You go all the way back 1,900 years ago to Pliny, a Roman governor who was writing his unconverted Roman emperor, Trajan, telling him about these Christians, this new sect. And he said this, these Christians are, and I quote him, in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day when they sing hymns to Christ as God. In that grade, we do the same thing and have been doing it now for 1900 years as a church in the New Testament era. You know, one of the men who visited our church just a few months ago came up and he told me that when he visited this church, the first Protestant church, by the way, he had ever visited in his life, he said what marked him was the enthusiastic singing of the people around him. You're probably wondering, he must not have been sitting in my section. (laughs) Well, he might have been. Compared to everything he had ever known, it was remarkable to him to be in a place that was to him alive with joyful singing. Everybody is singing. I've heard that often. 
over the years, by the way. Singing is not a prelude to what really matters when I finally get up here. Singing matters, period. In fact, it happens to be an imperative. What we're doing isn't because, well, you know, we just like to sing around here. We're following in the tradition of of the historic church that gathered to sing praise to God. And one of the things we spend a lot of time doing, our, our staff does, is making sure that what we sing is theologically correct, which is becoming more and more difficult as we go along, but also something that glorifies the attributes of our God, who is great and majestic and holy, who needs to be lifted up in our minds. He becomes greater. We become smaller. That's the point. Listen, we are enduring life together, are we not? Some in here are in the valley today. Some are on the heights. So is it any wonder that when we meet, we find fellowship with one another and the encouragement of our faith by praying and singing to Christ who is the true and living God. So what we do collectively, James is actually commanding to do individually. Whether you are trudging right now and it is uphill all the way, man, it's hard. Or maybe you're coasting downhill right now and you feel the refreshing breeze through your hair uh, on the sides of your head, okay? You, you, You feel it. James wants us to be consciously connecting whichever it is on that emotional spectrum back to Christ who is our God. Don't take either one for granted. All designed by him sovereignly. Whether you're in the car or in the kitchen or in the cubicle, whatever, whatever it is. You might sing a little quieter in there, but allow your thoughts to be interrupted periodically by singing and praying. Pray when you are overflowing with emotion, either good or bad. Secondly, pray when you are overcome with weakness. Look at verse 14 again. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. Now stop for a moment. Two times we just read the word translated, at least in my translation, sick. Once in verse 14, he might circle that, and once in verse 15. The word translated sick in verse 14 is the Greek word astheneo, which primarily refers to weakness or feebleness. In fact, in all but three occurrences in the New Testament, this word never refers to physical sickness, but spiritual weakness. Paul uses it to refer to the immature believer in Romans 14. Verse 1, the one who is weak in his faith, same word here. He uses again in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9 to talk about the, the, the immature believer that must be protected as he observes perhaps the, the exercising of liberty by a stronger believer. That stronger believer needs to take care for the weaker believer, same word. Paul even used the word in Romans chapter 5, which I find fascinating, for our 
unholy state prior to conversion, our lost estate. And he writes, for while we were still helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. Same word used in this text. The primary meaning, no matter what lexicon you look in, for us today is spiritual weakness, spiritual inability. So I recommend right now you clear up a tremendous amount of confusion by simply writing into the margin of your translation next to the word sick, the word weak. Or if you have enough room, spiritually weak. That's why you're to call elders. Why call elders if you're sick? You don't call the elders when you're physically sick to come heal you, at least I hope not. I can't do anything for you. I, I could take your temperature, give you some aspirin. If you throw up in front of me, I can throw up back at you. I'll do that. It's exactly what will happen. I can join you in your suffering. <laughs> James is saying to call the elders when you are spiritually weak. In fact, if you look down at verse 15, that next word translated sick, it's actually a different Greek word, but even more instructive. In fact, that word never refers to physical sickness. It refers to fatigue. It refers to weariness of spirit. That may very well lead to sickness. That can happen. But you can write into the margin next to that word translated sick in verse 15, the word weary. We use that idea today, by the way, in our own English language. We say we're sick of that job. You're not physically sick. You're just sick of it. You're weary of it. I'm sick of studying. I can't wait for the summer. You're not physically ill. You don't feel too good about it, but you're just weary. And you can't wait for the end of May. By the way, that particular word translated sick in verse 15 shows up only one other time. It's in the book of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 3, where the writer of Hebrews is encouraging the believer to run with endurance the race. In other words, it's the same context as James chapter 5. Endurance. Stay at it. And he uses the same word. He says, For consider him, that is Christ, who endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary. Same word. He isn't saying, look at Christ so you won't grow sick. Every one of us are looking to Christ. And by the way, every one of us are going to get sick. One day we're going to die of sickness. Nobody dies of good health. Unless it's an accident, we will die of something that made us sick. Were our eyes not on Christ? Correctly translated, Keep your eyes on Christ so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. James is telling the spiritually weak and weary to call for the elders. By the way, this informs us immediately that this does not fit the culture of the modern healing services or faith healers who would use this text to support their crusades. This isn't the public healing service. This isn't even a healing service at church or at the end of the service. It's a private prayer meeting in the home of the weary one. You ought to also notice, by the way, that this does not include spiritual leaders outside the assembly. 
but spiritual leaders over the church to which this weary one belongs. These are the elders of the local assembly. Now notice again verse 14. Here's another surprise or two. Is anyone among you weak? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil. Now what in the world is going on here? Well, let me tell you what is not going on first, and then we'll work our way around to what it is. First, this is not support for the Roman Catholic sacrament of extreme unction. I know many of you have come from Roman Catholicism, and you know full well what the sacrament is. This view, supported by this text, in their interpretation, supports the anointing of someone with oil set apart or made holy who is about to die. Supposedly, the sins committed in the latter days and weeks of this person's life will thus be forgiven. The oil has to be administered by the priest with so many breathings on it, uh, so many enchantments by so many words. The parts of the body to be anointed are the eyes, ears, nose, mouth, feet, and with women, the navel. And the priest will intone something along the lines of, by this holy oil and his tender mercy, God forgive you whatever you have sinned by sight, hearing, smell, and touch. Now listen, even the simplest reading of this text It's clear that this anointing has something to do with health, not death. This isn't a text about the dying. This is a text about the living. You don't need oil in order for God to forgive your last sins before you die in order to limit your your, your term in purgatory based on how bad or good you were. The particular sins you deal with individually as a believer each day, they are are confessed uh, immediately. uh, As as a priest yourself, you can go directly to, to Christ and through him to the Father for forgiveness. And you do that daily so that you'll have unhindered fellowship with Christ and his church. Not to try and avoid some kind of punishment, some kind of incarceration in the flames of torment. We have been saved from hell Already, by our salvation through faith in Christ alone. We never need fear that. The sacrament of extreme unction is really nothing more than job security for the priest in the church. Because the priest has to be the one to administer the oil to the dying person who hopes to cut his ears short in purgatory. This text is not some kind of justification for some special sacrament of holy oil that forgives sins. It isn't about death, it's about life, health. Furthermore, uh, this text does not give olive oil some kind of mystical or magical uh, power that guarantees healing. And this is where the Protestants need to take note too. And uh, uh, Protestants who, who add a, a few other myths and superstitions to things that are tangible, especially things from Israel, I have found as I've observed uh, by watching uh, too much TV. Especially the televangelist who sells uh, little bottles of sacred water from the Jordan River. You know, capable of giving you spiritual power on sale for $19.99 as long as supplies last. Uh, Friends, he got that water out of the kitchen sink. It's not from the Jordan River. He's lying to you. 
And if he isn't lying to you, and he really got it out of the Jordan River, then he stole it and illegally transported it back to the States. So he's either a liar or a thief. He needs that water himself, and hopefully it is holy. Who knows? Even so, the water from the Jordan is not some kind of mystically capable power able to give you some kind of spiritual connection or experience. There's an ancient Hebrew word for that, and it's pronounced baloney, right? (laughs) I reserve that word for cases like these. Pull it out every once in a while. Okay, that leads to the question. If this oil isn't a sacrament or some special potion... Why is it part of the elder's treatment of the weekend weary believer? Well, the Jews would have immediately understood what James was writing as he refers to the soothing effects, the massaging of olive oil to encourage the weary and fatigued. In fact, we do too because to this day people love to go to what? The spa. James is not referring, by the way, to a little dab of oil on the forehead. The participle James uses here means that the person's body is to be rubbed with oil. We have historical accounts of this occurring where family members would do the rub down in order to be discreet. Or or women would accompany the elders and do this for weekend weary women in the assembly. The word translated anointing has led to some myths, unfortunately confusing. It makes it sound like some kind of special ceremony, some kind of unique religious anointing with oil. No, it means a rubdown with oil. In fact, I looked at Spiro Zodiati's comment on this. He grew up on the island of Crete, and, and sure enough, he wrote of his own experience. He said this custom was used in, in his day, in the early 1900s. He is now with the Lord when he grew up. In fact, olive oil was used and the body rubbed down for, for physical and emotionally, uh, physically, emotionally weary people. In fact, he would write that no matter what you had, no matter what you were dealing with, it typically included a rub down with oil. Kind of like maybe some of you that grew up and, and no matter what you had, you got that spoonful of castor oil. That'll work somehow. So you got it no matter what. (laughs) Well, for James Day, with primitive medicine, in fact, doctors not in every village, and the implication is they wouldn't be here. I I think of some other historical accounts I uncovered. Herod the Great, on on occasion, would bathe in a vessel full, a, a tub full of olive oil to give him strength. And that was incredibly expensive, Celsus, an ancient doctor, recommended oil in the case of fevers. And today people enjoy the massaging of oil as they go to the the spa. James' reference to a full body rubdown with olive oil was only a part of the setting, and that is, I believe, part of the setting. This is no doubt the best of medicinal treatment in this primitive setting, but it wasn't the primary issue. This kind of weariness and fatigue and weakness would be helped, but that's not the issue. They do everything they can medicinally, but if that's all it was, why call for the elders? Why not just send a group of women to give that full body rubdown? Why not just send some men from the church? Why the elders? Because the primary issue is the issue of sin. In other words, this person who is spiritually weak 
and fatigued, is in this physical state because of unrepentant sin, and I'll show you why in a minute. The physical issues were secondary. Restoration and reconciliation were the primary issues in this person's life who more than likely has been disciplined already from the church. So he can't go there. He calls the elders to him. Now he desires to repent. Now he desires that reconciliation. And so he calls for the elders of the church to come to him. He's weary from his disobedience. He's now at the end of himself. He's he's besieged by guilt and sorrow. He's spiritually fatigued. He's worn out like David the psalmist, who, by the way, said the same thing of his unrepentant life. He said, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. Oh, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away with the fever heat of summer. Psalm 32, 3 and 4. There are physical effects of hypocrisy and hidden sin and living with guilt. The Bible is very clear about that. This kind of scene then is taking place in James 5. A man is is literally worn out by his unrepentant sin, and now he wants to seek reconciliation. He's repenting. And look at what happens again, verse 14. The elders are to pray over him, anointing him, literally having anointed him with oil. Now notice, in the name of the Lord. Now that little phrase has created all sorts of superstitions too. Let me deal with it very quickly. Just use the name Jesus. It's some kind of powerful incantation. Jesus. Just say it a dozen times. And maybe the reason you didn't get healed is because you didn't say it enough times. You didn't invoke it. By the way, if you just want to have a little fun, go through the book of Acts and find out how few times they invoke the name of Jesus in their healing of literal physical sicknesses. In fact, look at how often they didn't pray either. In fact, look how often the one they healed was an unbeliever. So praying in the name of Jesus, what does he mean? He means that you are aligning yourself with everything that the name of Jesus represents. Just saying Jesus, 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 Jesus over and over again isn't some kind of special incantation. In fact, to this day in Latin America, Jesus is a common name. But if you're talking about this Iesus, his name represents his character and his attributes and his power and and his forgiveness. So to invoke his name means to acknowledge everything he was and is. You are literally surrounded and surrendered to the totality of his revelation as high priest, as mediator, as Redeemer, as Savior, as King, as God incarnate. Furthermore, to pray in in the name of Jesus means to pray according to His will. To end a prayer by saying in Jesus' name means you are submitting whatever it is you prayed to the name, the will of Christ. Since we do not know the will of Christ, We are literally surrendering even our expectations of what we think he will do to what he chooses to do. And we're saying we will with that be satisfied. 
That's a prayer of faith, isn't it? This isn't a special formula. There are no special incantations. There aren't even special postures. There's no such thing as oil. It doesn't matter how you pray, your posture. You know the church in the early years debated the posture of prayer. A lot of ink was spilled on that one. What prayer is most effective? Do you you close your eyes? Do you look upward? Whatever. I I clipped this poem I I knew you would enjoy from the magazine published by Friends of Israel. The the magazine Israel, My Glory, had dealt with this debate about posture and prayer with some wonderful humor. The poem is entitled, The Prayer of Cyrus Brown. It was written by Samuel Ross, who was born in 1858. Here it goes. The proper way for a man to pray, said Deacon Lemuel Keyes, and the only proper attitude is down upon his knees. No, I should say the way to pray, said Reverend Dr. Wise, is standing straight with outstretched arms and rapt and upturned eyes. Oh, no, 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 said Elder Slow. Such posture is too proud. A man should pray with eyes fast closed and head contritely bowed. Well, it seems to me his hands should be austerely clasped in front with both thumbs pointing toward the ground, said Reverend Dr. Blunt. Well, last year I fell in Hodgkin's well head first, said Cyrus Brown. With both my heels a-sticking up, my head a-pointing down. And I made a prayer right then and there, best prayer I ever said, the prayingest prayer I ever prayed, a-standing on my head. (laughs) Oh, my. It doesn't matter how. You pray, it just matters that you pray, right? Pray when you are, you are overflowing with emotion. Pray when you are overcome with weakness. And let me give you a third point we'll cover today. It's in the same text, but I think it'll help focus the, the laser of interpretation. Pray when you are overpowered by sin. Notice verse 15. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is weary, and the Lord will raise him up. Now, there isn't any doubt in my mind that this weak and weary believer is praying along, confessing his sin, as I'll show you in a second or two. But would you notice that the prayer of faith, notice this, notice this. Notice that the prayer of faith is not being prayed by the sick person, but by the elder. It isn't the strength of the faith of the weary believer, but the strength of the faith of the spiritual leader. Translate that into the modern healing movement today. If a person doesn't get healed in a crusade or a service, who's to blame? Whose faith was too small? If you're going to translate or interpret this in light of physical sicknesses, then accept the responsibility of what James is saying here. If that person isn't healed, it isn't his fault, it's yours. It isn't the sick person's problem. It's the healer's problem. The weary one's faith wasn't too small. The healer's faith was too small. Try applying that one. Pastor Brad, who led our singing today earlier, said, told me after one of the earlier services, he said, he has a brother who's a quadriplegic. In fact, he's just about 100 points away from being in the Special Olympics in table tennis, ping pong for the rest of us, uneducated people. But he was out in public with his brother on one occasion, just rolling along, and a believer came up to him and admonished him, saying, if you had enough faith, you would be well. I've heard that preached. 
Haven't you? That person who was ill evidently needed more faith. Johnny Erickson Tata, by the way, now in her 60s, who has served Christ now for 44 years since her accident from her wheelchair. I thought she was rather bold in confessing and, and, and confronting, I should say, the health and wealth world, as only she could do, by the way. So I think I'll quote her. Listen to what she said, and I quote. She was on a talk radio show with Hank Hanegraaff, and she said this, quote, Kenneth Copeland, Kenneth Hagan, and Benny Hinn have never called me and asked me to come on their program. <laughs> I can only imagine why. She went on to describe when she was younger, believing that God still wanted her to be healed. She had her sister drive her to the Washington, D.C. arena where Catherine Kuhlman was holding a healing service. Maybe you're old enough to remember her. She always wore white, long, flowing robes. Johnny writes that the arena was packed, and there were 35 to 40 of us in our wheelchairs waiting for the stadium elevator to take us down to the arena. They sat us all together, and there we waited with bated breath, believing to the utmost of our faith. But nothing happened. It was devastating. She said she could remember all of them being ushered out early, waiting there in line for the stadium elevator to take them back up to the parking lot. Many of them wondering if the problem was their own lack of faith. Listen to me. James would say to the healers of our day, not only are you misinterpreting my letter, it isn't about physical sickness, but even if I was talking about healing sicknesses in general, the question of having enough faith is not in that sick person. It is in you. So either heal everyone or be quiet. And I say that because we have a guarantee in this text. Did you notice? There is a guarantee of restoration. There's no if, and, or, or but about it. Look at verse 15 again. And the prayer offered in faith, that is the elders who, who collectively gather in faith, believing God is sovereign, will restore the one who is sick or weary, and the Lord will raise him up. Not might raise him up. Not maybe raise him up. But will raise him up. Guaranteed. So let me say it this way. If this passage is referring to physical sickness, every time a believer gets sick, all you got to do is invite the elders to come over with a vial of oil, and you can't expect healing because this text does guarantee restoration. The truth is, even the Apostle Paul, if you look carefully enough, at the end of his ministry, as the, as, the, as the scriptures are being completed and that apostolic miraculous error is coming to a close, even Paul left co-laborers sick, one of them almost nigh, as it were, unto death. If, if all it took was a prayer and a little dab of oil, why withhold it from them? See, and I want to get to the key phrase. Verse 15. If he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. If you say the word if in the English language, you can mean maybe, possibly, certainly. My daughter's coming to ask me for money. I, 
I'll say if, but they know I mean yes. <laughs> Maybe you're watching the person, you know them well enough, to nod of their head or, or wink of an eye or whatever, and you know the if. It's, it's, it's challenging in the English language. In the Greek language, the word if is clearly stated in writing as to what he means. There are four classes or conditions. I won't bore you with all four, but just know that James uses the third class condition, which means more than likely. James is saying then, if he has committed sins, and more than likely he has, they will be forgiven. There's a guarantee. Whenever you confess sin, you will be forgiven. Whenever you need spiritual restoration because of sin, you will always be forgiven and restored. In other words, weariness and weakness may not always be the result of sin. That's why he uses the third class condition. But in this case that James is describing, more than likely it was. In fact, the verb translated, he has sinned, if he has sinned, describes the condition where a sinning, unrepentant believer is now abiding under the consequences of his sins in the recent past. In other words, his sins have finally caught up to him and they are wearing him out. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been tired because you've been managing your sin rather than confessing it to the Lord? Have you ever felt that weariness that comes from rebellion? James is describing here one of them. And his sins have finally caught up with him. Either he was unrepentant, as, un, as, as many commentators believe, disciplined already from the assembly, and therefore he calls the elders to come to him, or he's kept his sins a secret, and they finally wore him down. He's finally come to the end of himself. So he's called the elders to join him as he seeks to be reconciled to their authority to the assembly, ultimately to Jesus Christ. The elders come. Because of his weariness, they give him the best that they can give him, which is a full-body rubdown, or those in the family do so. They pray for him and with him as he repents of his sin, which has overpowered him. Listen, he's coming clean every time someone repents of their sin. Every time a believer comes clean, every time a prodigal comes home, every time the Lord will restore them, guaranteed. You don't have to do three weeks of penance. He will forgive you when you confess it. He will restore you. That's why you have such a strong guarantee. The word restored can actually be translated revived, revived, reinvigorated. The more sin we keep, the more we are beaten down. Repentance leads to revival every time, guaranteed. Let's sing this great benediction to our triune God. Now sing it out with joy. Praise God from whom.